The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. We often tend to think of physical and material things as the ultimate stuff of the universe. And yet, contemporary physics has largely abandoned the physical description of things in favour of energy and fields. This week on Philosophy for Our Times, our speakers take on the latest developments in physics and ask whether this has marked the end of all things in philosophy. So should we give up our conviction that physical stuff is the bedrock of the world? Or is such stuff just, in the end, unavoidable? Taking this on, we have Head of Particle Theory at the University of Oxford, Sabir Sakar. If there is a uh, title of a scholarly article is a yes-no question, the answer is always no. Philosopher of Science and Professor of Philosophy at the University of California, Nancy Cartwright. A lot of behavioural science is now losing its funding on the grounds that we're just this material stuff. And director of the Centre for Genomics and Society and author of The Disorder of Things, John Dupre. That much more fundamental than the old question what a thing is, is the question what it does. If this week's debate leaves you wanting more about the physical nature of reality, then why not check out episode 148 after this week's podcast on the problem with materialism. Please do subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use to listen to it. And for the latest updates from Philosophy for Our Times, check out our website at www.iai.tv podcast. Back now to Barry C. Smith, who hosts this week's debate. So I'm going to invite each of my panellists to set out their stall in a three-minute section. And we're really starting with the question of whether we should give up on our conviction that physical stuff is the bedrock of the world. So, John, could you start us off, please? Okay, thank you, Barry. Yeah, I feel quite strange starting this off because I'm the one person on the panel who doesn't know much about physics, and I guess to some degree this is a question about physics. Um, So, but I am a philosopher, so I will at least start by, by gesturing towards deconstructing the question I'm not quite sure what bedrock means in the question. It might just mean that's in some very strange sense all there is, that somehow there's only whatever physicists talk about, whether it's things or stuff. Or it might as often take it to mean something much stronger, that somehow whatever physics says there is determines everything else and makes everything else somehow less interesting. I, there, there is a, a lot of discussion among philosophers of science about whether something like the latter is true, but I think we're going to 
largely avoid that, um, or at least avoid that directly. And so, so then I'm going to come from a different point, and here's my stall. The problem I see with talking about things is that, at least from my perspective, interest in biology, I don't think there are any things anywhere at any scale. Um, I think what we talk about, th when we talk about things, uh, we're talking about stable parts of processes, and the underlying kind of philosophical idea is that much more fundamental than the old question, what a thing is, is the question, what it does. And actually, activity, doing, um, happening, acting, are the, the most fundamental um, constituents of the universe. I, I guess one way of saying that is to have a picture of what the history of the universe is like. Um, the, the universe, I guess, began, and again here this is a question for physicists and cosmologists, but I guess it began pretty much as pure energy or mass energy or something like that. But over the billions of years that have followed, various different things have emerged. I want to see those things as not objects in the traditional sense in which we sort of think of sort of billiard ball atoms and things made up of billiard ball atoms, but as eddies in a flow of process. And I think the eddy in a stream is the perfect kind of paradigm for what actually these things are like. When we understand, when we, when we look at that, a whole lot of things make much more sense from this point of view. As soon as we get start to get any kind of structures out of this evolutionary process, new forms of activity become possible. So even just chunks of matter, an asteroid can dent a planet. That's something that, I guess, pure energy, there's no denting going on there. Uh, I, I guess then we have chemical, you know, the evolution of chemical objects, things, and what becomes possible then is all kinds of interactions which underlay eventually the emergence of life, which is, of course, my particular interest. As we have life and we have living processes, eddies in a stream of immensely complex chemistry structured in various ways, we have countless new activities, things or processes that swim, that can fly, that can mate, that can eat, and so on. And I think we have another stage of this complexity actually with the appearance of humans who do a lot more um, than any other creatures in terms of new kinds of activity that constitute us as humans. And of course, many of those are focused around language, culture, the things we always like to talk about as being very special about ourselves. Um, now, I don't think debating deep philosophical questions at any rate is something that matter does qua matter. Um, it's something that very complex uh, arrays of matter arranged into the kind of dynamic streams that we are capable of, and so far as we know, nothing else has done. I guess that this picture, nothing in this picture is supposed to appeal to what might traditionally have been thought of as non-physical stuff. Now, of course, all these complex things that emerge in the evolution of the universe are not physical in the sense of being whatever it is that physics talks about, but, uh, but they're not non-physical in the sense that I take it that all of these things are, insofar as they're made of something, made of whatever physics talks about. 
the, the whole, the, the, the being made of is not a particularly fundamental or bedrock aspect of something. The fact that we're made of ultimately the same stuff as rocks or giraffes or whatever else doesn't tell you anything very much. The kinds of activities that we are capable of that make us human are very different. John, thank you. Sabir, let me turn to you with the same question. If we're thinking that um, there's a physical stuff that's the sort of underlying stuff of everything else there is, what is it like? So my response to this question, which is, should we give up on our conviction that the physical stuff is the bedrock of the world, question mark, is to invoke something we call Hinchcliffe's rule in physics. Ian Hinchcliffe is a physicist at Berkeley. And his rule is that if there is a, a title of a scholarly article is a yes, no question, the answer is always no. Okay. <laughs> now, of course, you can ask, is Hinchcliffe's rule true? Right. So there is a paradox there. <laughs> no. Of course, we all know the Hinchcliffe's rule is uh, true, except when it is not, right? So it doesn't apply to the three themes of this uh, meeting. Is is reality made of matter? Answer is. We'll, uh, we'll get to the we'll no. get to the themes. We'll get to the themes. So this question, so, the answer is no. The answer is no. So physical stuff is not the bedrock of the world. No, we shouldn't give no. up on it. Oh, we shouldn't give up. We shouldn't give up on it. We shouldn't give up on it. Good, Nancy. So in asking, should we give up? on um, material stuff as the bedrock, I want to know what you're ruling out. I'm always worried about ruling things out uh, a priori or at a certain point in time, because I think, for instance, I much, make much use of talk about fields and energy and forces in fields were thought not to be stuff and resisted. Uh, seriously until we just really got a lot of useful physics out of them and then suddenly forces and fields and energy and then same thing with energy now they're suddenly okay they're part of the stuff of <laughs> the physical stuff um, so I don't want to start ruling things out I'm a bit worried about these prior views about what counts as material stuff and if that's all there is you know, don't we have to kind of think of ourselves in terms of material stuff? It has knock-on effects. Uh, for instance, you know, I work in the philosophy of social science and I find a lot of behavioral science is now losing its funding for neuroscience, for brain science, on the grounds that we're just this material stuff that you can, whatever our personalities and behaviors are, is going to be encoded in the brain. and. Um, that's, again, you know, there, it's a kind of argument that starts from, this is the material stuff that we know is okay. And anything else, when you start talking about people's imaginations, intentions, about social norms, um, about habits, that's all, you know, not part of this ontology that we all, that we take to be okay. So I worry about that question itself and it closing down it closing down discovery and uh, redirecting funding from projects that are uh, promising on their own right to ones that can achieve the next small step. And then the last thing is I also wanted to point out that you know, I don't want to think in terms of substance. So um, I think there are persons, I think there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of different kinds of things or processes or activities in the world. There are lots, they have lots and lots and lots of different kinds of features and that that's just how the world is. There are lots of different kinds of features. They interact causally to produce 
you know, the outcomes that we see in the world, um, and that it's, um, it's not as if, you know, by thinking that there are persons and persons have intentions and imagination, that there are social norms, that social, actually social policies can have effects. I don't think that I'm being a, a kind of dualist who is committed to there being some other kind of stuff, whatever that meant, <laughs> that's airy-fairy, like a, a spirit of nature or something. And I'm not even opposed to, you know, a program that would actually have a, a systematic promising research program for the spirit of nature. I mean, you know, it seems to me it depends on what you actually have a good start on with evidence that it's a promising program. So I'm just worried about the formulation of this kind of a question that it, um, it tends to get yes, no, <laughs> um, and we're stuck with, with where we are rather than or going the wrong direction. So you might think by bedrock some sense in which these are the fundamentals by which we've got to explain and describe the behavior of everything else. You might think there's no lower than that we can go. Some people have worried in physics that for any place we get to, and it might be fields, it might be energy, it might be, we might still want to and have the urge to dig below that and find some other, appeal to some other properties or other dimensions that we could use. So that's, that's, that's one thing. Is there, is there a grounding? One might think maybe there isn't, I don't know. Another thing you could think of is, um, if there is just one kind of stuff in, the, in, in reality, so one kind of stuff out of which everything else is composed, it certainly wouldn't follow that there's just one theory that explains everything else there is, which is why we have a biologist on the panel as well, because one might think- And a social scientist. And a social scientist, good. Thank you. Because we might think that there are levels of description of some of that stuff, which uh, will not be captured and which will not uh, show their laws or their, their, their explanations if we stick to the fundamental level at which we're describing uh, the elements that physicists, fundamental physics uh, appeals to. So we might think that. But when we talk of levels of description, we might wonder, are levels of description just that? Are they just convenient ways of classifying, categorizing, bundling up, they're just levels of description, or are they levels of reality? Is there something that we're getting at when biologists talk about cells or talk about organisms or talk about organs? Are there things that people are getting at when they talk about societies or groups or when they talk about uh, even persons? That's, I think that's an issue that we're trying to get at. And the other thing I think was John gave a very nice uh, appeal to structures. He kept talking about structures as we saw more and more complexity and of course, I think it was Aristotle who reminded us if you take a, a house and you knock it down and you keep all the bits, you've got all the same bits, but it's not a house. So what makes something out of this matter a house? Well, it's not another physical bit. It's an arrangement of those bits and the arrangement or the structure doesn't seem to itself be a physical thing. So I wonder if there is an appeal to more than physical things we need to get our explanations off the ground. So I'm going to try and press John on that first to see whether there are non-physical things or in, in your talk of processes and whether or not it's a level of description that we use in biology or it's a level of reality we're picking out. Um, well, I'm happy to say it's a level of reality, but I, I'd like, and I'd like to elaborate on that by slightly disagreeing with the story you Good. told, uh, you know, the, the Aristotle story, yep. because it is true of a house 
just what you say, that you can, can knock it down and then, in principle, reassemble the parts. And that's because the parts are very stable parts of the world, and they stay pretty much the same when you knock them down. Now, uh, in general, this is a quite misleading way of thinking about biology. You can't, and there are, it's true, you can put certain sea creatures into your um, blender and tip them back into the sink and they will reassemble. But uh, this is exceptional. If I put you mm. into a mm. Cuisinart mm. and collect all the, all the cells, there is no way on this planet that I'm going to be able to reassemble you. And the reason is not just that you're a very complex structure, there you are. Um, it's not just that it would be very hard to find the right place to put you. It, the bits, it's just that the bits would no longer be the kind of bits they were after you'd been disassembled. So this is, this is actually gets to the heart of why we have to think of living beings as processes, because it is the interactions with the, the various other parts, and also not only with the other parts, but with much else beside. For example, the several, the, the approximately 10 trillion microbes, excluding viruses, of which there might be another 100 trillion, that live in your body. Um, so, so, so the, a part is a part of a living thing by virtue of all the process that goes to, um, to make that living thing stable over some time period. And this leads me, I guess, to another, to go back one step further and maybe disagree with what I seem to say, which you picked up on, which is, of course, it's absolutely right and important that as the universe um, evolves, we get these ever more complex structures. But it's a mistake to focus too much on the structures. There's a tradition in biology of thinking, okay, what we need to do is find out what these structures are, look at what the bits are, and how they contribute by interacting with one another to the kind of behavior of the whole. And though that works sometimes, it only works to a very limited extent because of actually the, the reason that I gave, that it, a living being is not made up of a fixed inventory of, of parts put together. It's actually constantly recreating and degrading the parts. So it's actually the parts are only um, a kind of, um, you know, a, a, a momentary inventory. And what this actually has led um, in, in the early 20th century, there was a wonderful group of theoretical biologists who um, had read Whitehead, the great process philosopher of the early 20th century. And um, what he pointed out was you actually cannot do biology by just saying, find the structure and explain how that produces the function. Because structure and function are absolutely inextricable. Structure is a way of serving function, but function is a way of maintaining structure. The organism doesn't maintain its structure just by itself. All the things that it does are parts of maintaining that structure. Good. So I, I think that's, uh, that's very clear, that there are a lot of things that are there for the maintenance. But I'm wondering whether, nonetheless, we would think uh, there are certain boundaries 
that exist that we must be very respectful of. Uh, and, and I'm thinking, you know, I have a skin that keeps the fluids in me in and keeps some of the liquid I might be plunged into out. We've got some nice orifices in the face and elsewhere, which do a very clever exchange job with some of the ins and outs. But roughly, we keep a kind of permeable boundary. And I'm going to use a word that I'm not entirely in control of. That's Markov blanket. And I'm going to suggest, well, look, um, we've, we, we, we're looking at all the nodes in that uh, processing system and trying to define them in such a way as to what they exclude from particular nodes of organization. And you could think of the Markov blanket as being my skin separating me from the environment. You could think of Markov blankets within Markov blankets. I contain organs. My organs contain cells. Cells have cell membranes. What's this have those, to do with Markov? Nu nuclei. These could still be ways of talking about boundaries and ways mm. in which you can wrap things together mm -hmm. to leave other things out, which seem to make sense, even scientifically, but I'm wondering if you want to resist that too. I absolutely, well, I, I want to resist it along the lines of what Nancy was saying about the countless different things, if you want to talk in things, that there are. The problem is not that there aren't boundaries. The problem is there are far too many boundaries, and nature doesn't tell us where to draw the boundaries. I mean, so you say, you know, you have your skin, and yeah. I guess traditionally yeah. we've thought of uh, um, an organism like ourselves as a sort of tube where you know from the mouth to the other end of the there's a, just a tube which is all on the outside um, of us and that's I guess trying to construct this complete boundary but this tube is actually populated by the by many of these trillions of microbes are those microbes part of you or are they something else depends what you're interested in from certain kind of evolution theoretical points of view, you will say, well, no, they have quite different evolutionary histories. Um, but from in terms of the functional whole, how the whole system works and survives, then many of those microbes are essential parts of you without which you wouldn't survive very long. From an evolutionary point of view, you might actually wonder, well, what about the mitochondria that live in every cell? Because they actually have a different evolutionary history if you go far enough back. Now, nobody actually has any particular good reason except some very bizarre ethical debates for um, thinking that the mitochondria are not part of you. But still... Does, it, does this matter? I mean, I, I take that, yep. and we can see the skin is constantly yep. shedding cells, and yep. there are bacteria that are living on us and all the rest. Great. Doesn't it still seem this uh, relatively impermeable boundary is really quite important to the functioning of the organism. Yeah, all these boundaries, the boundaries around your organs, all right. kinds of membranes Good. within Good. you are important. So there are all these boundaries, but which of them you want to pick out to choose a thing? And I guess one other point I must Why make... Why can't they all be things? Um, well, because then there are overlapping things and... Well, I mean, but, but that's not... That gets you very far from the traditional concept of a thing. And, and can I just make one other point on this topic? You know, we are, I think, at least since Aristotle, um, very much, we very much suffer from the tendency to think that the paradigm of life is something like us, or maybe a horse, or, you know, some, sure. some large charismatic vertebrate. Um, now, this is actually a tiny corner of life, and one of the things that defines this tiny corner of life is a very high degree of integration and separation. 
If we started with plants, things would look very different. You know, if you, if you ever do any gardening and you try and get rid of your ground elder, you won't find there's an individual there. You'll find there's a process going on that keeps throwing up things you don't want and drives you absolutely mad. If you start looking at a whole lot of strange sea creatures, like the kinds that you can put in the Cuisinart and then they'll reassemble, and so, there, so, there, so there, there's many, many things, but still you're accepting there are boundaries and, and you're saying nature doesn't care about which ones there are, yeah. but, but there can still be such boundaries. There's lots of discontinuity. Life requires okay, I, okay, discontinuity. Right, but, but boundaries around my skin wasn't uh, relatively impermeable to those things. The liquids in me or the liquids outside would but permeate. But all these boundaries are permeable to lots of things. I mean, the boundaries around your cell or your liver. Yeah, but relative, I said relatively impermeable. So, well, so, so. Yes, okay. <laughs>Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Okay, so Sabir, I mean, physicists, I guess, don't care about the difference between, at the fundamental level, between a piece of chewing gum on the table and the wood on the table. They just go right the way through. But don't you think there's something that matters about lassoing some of these boundaries or distinguishing between certain kinds of arrangements Cosmology might care about the arrangements of things into planets, yeah, well, asteroids. Sure. So let me first say that we are not really as hard reductionists as we are often made out to be. Because if you do anything seriously, you've discovered that those old categories don't necessarily apply. Yeah. And in fact, you know, life, biology, emergent behavior in general, which is something recognized certainly within physics as something that we don't talk about because we just recognize that's not something you can predict from the Lagrangian. Okay, that, that's, that's emergent, we recognize that. There is in fact the science of emergent phenomena separately, but, but let me come back to this question of, uh, I mean, you seem to be debating, you mentioned structure. So this is actually a very old hat. So in the old days we used to talk about, you know, stuff is made out of atoms and atoms are made out of nuclei and nuclei are made out of, you know, protons and protons are made out of quarks. And then, of course, people might be wondering, are they just trying to find the next level, you know, the next yeah. Russian doll? Yeah. No, we abandoned that decades ago. We moved on to something called dynamics. We are trying to understand the dynamics of fundamental phenomena. Mm. We are not interested in Russian dolls or mm. any kind of mm. doll. Mm. Right? So, for example, a proton, the quarks, right? there is no substructure to quarks. What there is is the dynamics of quarks, which is a force called quantum chromodynamics, which has got a very interesting and completely unprecedented dynamics, which we have names for, I'm not going to bring in jargon in here, but suffice it to say that that explains why is it that matter exists, which otherwise you would not have understood, mm. okay, at the level of quarks. And this dynamics tell, shows us that in fact the real frontiers are not in trying to define things in the old-fashioned way of you know, stuff being made of stuff made of stuff. 
that there are okay so in some sense i think there is a uh, i can see where there, there's an interface with thinking of things as process which is dynamics is another word for process which is mm. right but i you know i think we should really try to see if we are making progress rather than get caught in linguistic sort of traps as to you know exactly what you're talking about i do sense that what he just said resonates I, that's the kind of thing we are also doing and therefore, the question of whether stuff is, I mean, ultimately, I think this title of this debate is provocative to the extent that what people really have in the back of their minds is, is there something other than quote physics to explain the material world or the other kinds of reality? That's really is what at the back of people's minds. And the answer is, of course, there is. We have all experienced alternative realities, but we haven't shared them. No, I'm sitting here talking, you're listening to me. We share the same physical reality. That's why you can hear me, understand me, and engage with us, right? If you are in another reality, I'm sure you'd be very happy, but I'm not necessarily going to be able to talk to you, right? So it's not, we are not denying the nature of other realities, but we are just saying that what physics can deal with is, by definition, physical reality. We are, we are very specific about what we do. And, and in this new uh, spirit of dynamism, yes. um, are we allowed to say quarks are fundamental? The word fundamental, well, here actually I... Or is I, that I, too I, Russian doll for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, fundamental is of course a, you know, it's an old word. And as Nancy was saying earlier, all these words have had some historical meanings. Yeah. And today we can ask whether we should continue to use them because they have come to mean something. And quarks are not fundamental in the sense that we used to think of fundamental particle. The word fundamental particle was coined for many particles that today we know are not fundamental. They're made out of other things. Exactly. But quarks are not actually made of anything else. They are vibrations in a quark field, and the quark field itself might be vibrations of a superstring. So in that sense, we are now talking about dynamical phenomena, not about substructure. But we don't have an answer in those no, things. I, I, Everything I just okay. said was total speculation. So is there is there still a subject for you of the foundations of physics, would you still think there is such a thing? I think that the fact that people want to discuss the philosophical implications of the foundations of physics is very interesting because that says something about us as sentient beings, that we want to ask those <laughs> questions, even though we are not certain that we would understand the answers when they're given to us. Okay, right? all right. And, and that, that's, uh, that's something I find fascinating. But let me tell you, I have, there is a whole school of philosophy and physics at Oxford they're still discussing the measurement problem in quantum mechanics, yeah. which we have moved beyond 60 years ago. So I spent some time, as you see, at the Niels Bohr Institute. That's where this so, issue was first so raised. So we're not going to raise the old battles between physicists and philosophers of physics. No, but we'll, no, no we'll, battles. We'll, we'll, we'll no touch, battles. We'll touch on it. We'll touch we're on all it. on the same side. We are all interested in I hope so. making progress. I hope so. So yeah. in, the, in the spirit of making progress now, yeah. in the spirit of talking about something which is dynamical and something which is perhaps more process-oriented. Um, causality, Nancy. You've still got a, a, a need, I guess, for, for notions of causes. And if we are talking about causality, what, what do we say about the nature of the causes? Do we think that things of different kinds, and, and, and I'm using things, and, I, and we maybe shouldn't, that John has talked about large-scale organisms, small-scale organisms, mitochondrial uh, 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 bacteria, and talking about mitochondria, and you've been talking about 
social groups and classes. Do these enter into causes or do they just collapse down to whatever is doing the push and pull at the fundamental level? Um, well, again, I think you're looking at it the wrong way. Please um, tell me why. Well, Good. Um, but John said that I had said there are a lot of different things or different kinds of things. What I said was there are a lot of different features or properties right. or powers that things may have right. um, and that the, they engage in different activities and different, so I'll agree with John, uh, they, and you with the, the, the dynamics of them, they do different things, and that the, the, there isn't a problem about causation. Things, things in the world, whether they're processes or fields or little chunks of sort of hard matter, they do things, and they do things by virtue of the features they have that empower them to do things. The only reason we think that they empower, the features empower them to do things is because there's some systematicity to what these things can do when they're put in different situations. So we, you, we inevitably, um, it seems to me all of us, have got um, an ontology that has activities with something or other doing something, but I think that what's happening is that there are, whether there are things or processes or space-time, curved space-time, that there are, um, in virtue of the features they have, the features um, empower them to, to act in certain ways, and what we see happening is a consequence of the empower, the, the, these uh, powers acting in consort in different arrangements. So I tend to think that the only place where that you talked about structure and arrangements, and there is an old idea from the, you know, the mechanical philosophy of the scientific revolution that there were, you know, these bits of atoms, and what uh, what really mattered was their arrangements and their motions, and that was going to fix everything that happened, um, and that just leaves out all the features they have, and um, perhaps the arrangements come back in that um, different features um, with their same powers can produce quite different behavior when they're in different settings with different other powers. So there are the nice cases where you know you can have a system like a charged particle that has a power to attract an oppositely charged particle, but you can create an arrangement in which when that power is exerted, um, the other particle actually moves further away from it. My thought is that you get, in a sense, you get causation for free once you start thinking in terms of the dynamics of activities and trying to understand the nature of activities, I mean, think that there's something to be understood, there's some systematicity to it, then the systematicity has to do with, uh, with the causal powers that these features have to, you know, to act in certain ways. And if we didn't have the systematicity, you couldn't have science. So I'm wondering where the systematicity comes from or what, what it consists in, really. Um, I think three of us at least used to examine for the University of London uh, de federal degree in philosophy at one time. And causal explanation was on the epistemology paper and causation was on the metaphysics paper. <laughs> and, and all the students in the University of London used to know this distinction very clearly. Am I doing causal explanation or am I actually talking about causation? So, so when we talk about the systematicity I'm wondering whether at, at the sort of high level at which we've got special sciences like economics, uh, social psychology, and so on, if we try to formulate causal 
talk, we might think of that as giving causal explanations. You know, if you get a, a, a rise in interest rates, then this will happen, or if, you, if, if, if we see you know, increased taxes, this will happen. Uh, does that ultimately cash out in terms of uh, something at a lower level that implements some of the, that, those, those other features we pointed to, and that's where the, the push and pull goes. This might be a bit Russian doll for you, Sabir, but, or is it that, so it's just causal explanation. It's a, it's a style of talking and explaining to ourselves, but the causation's going on at, at, at a level below, or does causation ride all the way up? When we talk about causation and economics, are these still genuine causes, things that move one situation to another? Yeah, back to the question of, is it all physics? So, okay, so that's a question. So first of all, um, where'd you get this? I mean, I know it's absolutely typical, and you've used it now several times, this idea of levels. I don't really understand the idea of levels. John um, wants levels. I, well, you, I thought you all talked about Reality. levels. I don't, um, I mean, it's like, it's as if some of the features that have been with us since ever there was human society or ever humans or some of the features that have been with us ever since there's been living things or that have been with us ever since there's been planets, that those features are somehow second-class citizens. I mean, there are other features that are okay, and those features, the first ones, they figure in real causation, and these other features have some trouble figuring in real causation, um, so it's I don't understand where this assumption comes from that these guys are second class and these are first class, so these have to, we have to somehow explain how they can possibly do that, right? Because these ones, we, these are fine, we understand, we don't really understand, but we, we're gonna take for granted they can figure in causal relations. Yeah. Now, these guys, well, you know, why are they second class to begin with? Uh, as, so let's go back to your distinction between causal explanation and causation. They figure in our causal explanations. How am I supposed to know what actual causation in the world is, except by looking at our best scientific accounts of what brings what about? And when I look at our best scientific accounts, what brings things, what brings things about, um, I actually think I have some evidence that certain drug policies brought about this and that bad effect and brought about this and this good effect. And I have very, very good evidence for some of that. And I don't see why then the causal relation that I'm attributing there is now uh, sort of a, a, a second class. I, I read back where, where I think things have causal powers and what causal powers they have from my most successful causal explanations. And the causal explanations really do work for us. They not only assign responsibility, but some of them allow us to make very, very good predictions. We don't make as precise predictions as Subar does, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, when you do the gravity wave thing, you do this 10 decimal places, say. But um, we still make remarkable predictions given how complicated settings are and how different one sort of society and one social setting is from another. The idea that you can, um, you know, the, our, 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 the kind of things we invoke in our causal explanations, um, and then when we use them to predict something else, and we say they're gonna cause that, or they're gonna bring it about, or they're gonna, we're gonna put this in and then that's gonna happen. I think, I mean, I, those are, we, seem to be very powerful reason to think causation is going on. Okay, that's, uh, th then that's fine because yeah, I think you've answered it because you think causation is also at these higher levels. So I we, think causation, I don't think we ever have just pure cases of 
So you sort of stack things in levels. I have. Uh, well, <laughs> imagine you could tell me how you, you know, where they are. Um, almost all the time that I see an effect where I really understand, I have a really detailed understanding of how it was brought about. It's generally brought about by things from, I mean, you know, you're not quite clear which level to put the effect at because it's got some aspects that really matter okay. about it being describable. Yep. A little bit of the phys physics description matters, a little bit of the biology. So you don't know what level to put the effect at. And then the causes uh, that have to work together to bring it about come from a variety of different levels. So there could be cross-level generalizations, and I think some philosophers rule that out, but I think that's, that's, that's you're not, and, and rightly so. But look, here's a, here's a way, I'm going to come back to Sabir, here's a way of trying to think of this question, however crudely and flat-footedly I want to pose it, which is about what, what's the, 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 the ultimate um, level of stuff. You know, we could give an explanation of why the square peg didn't go into the round hole in, top of, in terms of here's the size of the, you know, the, the square thing, here's the, here's the round thing. But ultimately, what makes that square peg not go into that round hole is going to be a clash of you know, the, the particles resisting one another and the, the, the force fields resisting one another. So wouldn't one say, you know, we can talk this way, you know, square pegs don't go into round holes, that's sort of a law. But ultimately, what makes that true is always going to come down to what's happening at the micro level and what's actually resisting what. Well, exactly. That's why you're not falling through the floor because the stuff in the floor is resisting you coming through it. But that ultimately is due to something which in physics we call the exclusion principle. The electrons in your body and the electrons in the floor don't want to exist in the same state. Right. Right. So, right. But, right. But that is a very meta explanation. You know, if someone asked me, you know, if I try to say to someone, the reason I'm not falling through the floor is because of the Pauli exclusion principle, they'll say, come off it. You know, I mean, that that's a very elaborate explanation of something so mundane that you can see it with your bare eyes. You don't need that level of explanation. Right. Although it is, you're right, it it's is the underlying reason. The under, right, exactly. Yeah. So this is, this is the distinction that we yeah. use between causal explanation. Mm. You don't need that explanation. No. As Nancy said, you might yeah. get perfectly satisfying causal sure. explanations. But when you think... What is ultimately making that true? What's ultimately grounding that? What are the reasons? You do have to go down to that level. Absolutely. If you want to talk about things at the level of cause and effect, you do you have do. to go down to that level. And there, uh, let me just say uh, very quickly that a few years ago, somebody at, uh, there was an experiment in an Italian uh, laboratory that claimed to see neutrinos traveling faster than light. Oh, yes. Do you remember I remember this? that, yes. And there was a big hullaboo, and someone from, some columnist from The Guardian called me up and said, uh, is this possible? And I said, no, but, you know, <laughs> this would violate causality. You know, it's mm. built into the structure of special relativity. Nothing can travel faster than light. And I think he was trying to provoke me. I was naive. I didn't realize he wanted a sound bite. So he says, so who cares about causality? Well, what would it, how would it matter? I said, look, Without causality, we are buggered. Do you understand? Okay. So I'm, I'm and he said thank you and put down the phone. And <laughs> That's a good soundbite. That's a great soundbite. One we'll repeat often. Um, John, just finally before I open it up for questions, um, same thing. The, the the reasons and the causality eventually end up at the ground floor level. Um, no, I I I really believe they actually don't. Um, and one way of 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 saying why I think that is. Going back to this, this idea of a world of process, 
when we talk about things, we, we, we actually focus first on a different question, which is often really ignored, which is how the things sta are stabilized. Why it is that we can imagine an animal as a thing because it stays more or less stable in the time we see it. So, so absolutely fundamental to the kind of science that I think about is, is, are these questions of stabilizations of entities. And when you look at those, what you find is it isn't, it's just inadequate to think of the stability of an organism, its persistence, as simply deriving from the properties of its parts, even at the next level. And I think levels are a convenience. I don't think there's actually a, you know, a particular set of levels. But at the, at the constituents, that's not enough. We have to look at the relation of that thing to all kinds of of external stuff. Now, you, if you want to say exter if you want to say the microbes are external, then they're then that's part of the external stuff. You don't have to do that. But then there's still there's another level of the, the 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 environment of the organism, which indeed the organism is constantly, typically creating from itself. It's constructing an environment that then um, serves to enable its stability. What I'm actually getting is what, what philosophers often talk about as downward causation. Yeah. I'm not sure I like that expression exactly, but it gets to something really important. That when you try and explain what happens at a particular scale, let's say, and I mean scale includes scales of space and scales of time, you can't just do it bottom up. You have to do it in terms of, this relates to actually what Nancy was saying is what something will do depends often on the context. And this is endemic in biology. You know, we, we, we have a whole history of, of, of trying to look at molecules and figuring out what they do. And we used to think, you know, we used to talk about genes for this and that, as if the gene were there to produce a certain bit of the phenotype. And then we found that actually the same gene will do dozens of things in different contexts. Uh, and now we've, we're actually going through the same thing with proteins. There was a time when we used to talk about moonlighting proteins because we thought we discovered what the protein was for. And in its spare time, it turned out to be doing something else. But <laughs> in fact, you know, this is throughout biology. The, the, the behavior of things is shaped by their context as much as by their structure. So the whole idea of everything ultimately being explicable bottom up is entirely, you know, maybe if you have the entire universe and a physical description of it, maybe if you're God, that explains everything. But I think that's a question that we can, we can bracket as really not within human competence. Okay, thank you. Let me ask you to thank our speakers, Nancy Cartwright, Sabir Sacker, and John Dupree. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Arts and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Sabir Sakar, Nancy Cartwright, and John Dupree. Now you've heard the podcast, why not head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review and let us know what you thought of this week's debate. Subscribe to the podcast on whichever podcast platform you use to listen to it. And please do tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.